Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. Just as life is starting to feel brighter in the Bay Area, India has been hit with a devastating coronavirus surge that's infecting hundreds of thousands of people every day. Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday talks about why life has gotten so grim in India after a year of weathering the coronavirus pandemic pretty well. She's also discussing some happier news, that a vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds should be ready soon. Aaron Alday, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Heather Knight. Continuing to be the busiest woman at the Chronicle. You have two stories we're going to talk about today on the coronavirus front. Um, first one is a very sad story about um, the devastation in India. Uh, life seems to be beginning to return to normal in the Bay Area, and I think people are feeling happy and optimistic for the first time in a long time, but it's a very different picture around the world. So can you describe what's happening there? Yeah, it's um, it's really awful, honestly. It's a humanitarian crisis, the likes of which we haven't really seen so far in this pandemic. Um, and, you know, as we all well know, things have been awful um, throughout this pandemic. We've seen a, just a lot of, you know, death, a lot of um, really serious illness, you know, in our own country, in our own cities. But what's happening in India right now is just on a whole other scale. It's honestly kind of hard to wrap your head around it. They're reporting about 350,000 cases a day right now, um, which I know. And I mean, in the United States, like in our worst, we were probably about 200, 250,000, which I mean, we have a smaller population. So that's horrifying to like make that comparison. But the thing you have to keep in mind with India is that that's probably a pretty dramatic undercount because Mm -hmm. it's just so overwhelming there. And you know, their cities are very, very dense. So and people live under very dense conditions. And so when, you know, I've, I've talked to people who when the virus gets into, you know, a neighborhood or a city, it's just it just spreads like everywhere. I mean, just every single person, you know, in sight will get it. And so people feel like if they just walk out their front door, it's just right there kind of all around them. Um, the people I talk to, you know, who are family, they're like, they just they don't want to go outside at all, even with a mask on because of fear of coming into contact with the virus. And they're also, wow. you know, they're reporting um, now, I think just on Thursday, 3,600 deaths from COVID-19, which far outpaces what we ever reported in the United States under our worst um, conditions. And again, that's also, you know, almost certainly a a pretty dramatic undercount. Um, And just the descriptions you hear from the ground there, from reporters on the ground, from people, you know, on social media and people talking to their families of bodies lined up to be cremated, of so many kind of funeral pyres kind of burning at once that they light up the night sky like it's just awful oh my gosh and then people you know the hospitals are full right and so people can't get hospital beds they are you know suffering in the street they're dying in the street they're dying at home um and they're running out of oxygen they're they're begging for oxygen supplies from all of the you know from countries around the world so it's just like it is kind of like the worst case scenario that we have all sort of imagine this virus could be um, for a year. And now, you know, the fact that it's happening when we have this vaccine available and when things are looking, you know, so much better here, I think just makes it that much more striking. 
Yeah. Why is it so bad there now a year into the pandemic? Well, you know, there's there's a lot of questions around that. I think there are two probably main things that people look at. One is, I mean, India actually did really well with its its pandemic for a long time. They had a pretty strict lockdown um, for many months. Like people, you know, could only leave their their homes during certain hours of the day. And um, and masking was actually pretty universally popular there. Um, you know, people were really kind of sticking to a lot of these restrictions. Um, and, and so the, and that paid off, they were doing really well. And basically it's, it's kind of what we hear about where they very quickly loosened a whole lot of restrictions, um, back in about January. Um, and it was just premature, right? Like they just thought that they were past the worst of it. They knew the vaccines were out there. They hadn't really started vaccinating their public yet, but they knew that the vaccines, you know, existed and would be available. And they just thought, they could get away with this. And I think there was a lot of political pressure, too. Um, the prime minister began holding big political rallies. There was um, a big um, Hindu festival that took place that they allowed to go on um, that, you know, in involved, you know, millions of people doing pilgrimages from from rural parts um, of the country all, you know, to to these big cities. Um, and so that's, you know, they brought a lot of people together. And then anecdotally, you know, you just hear the same thing we had, which is people were holding weddings, they were doing baby showers, they were doing kind of, you know, all the gatherings that we've all been instructed not to do for so long. And they were doing that because they were told that it was time that it was safe. So that's, mm -hmm. that's part of what was going on. And then there's also concern that that variants are really propelling this particular surge for them that there are, you know, mm -hmm. this is this is happening as there are these known more infectious variants you know, all over the world. And that's probably making, you know, a bad situation that much worse. Yeah. Um, your lead on this story is just such a gut wrencher. You talked to a research scientist at San Francisco's Gladstone Institutes um, and his family is all in India. So I wondered if you could just um, tell listeners about what has happened to his family. Yeah. So I spoke with um, Rahul Suryawanshi, um, who is a, he's like a postdoc, like a research scientist at Gladstone. And he had just moved here from the East Coast um, in January. And so at the time, you know, we were in this winter surge in, in the Bay Area. And, you know, it was kind of a bad situation here, but things were looking really good in his, in, in, in India, where he's from. Um, but then, you know, there was this very quick turnaround um, where things started really improving here. Um, and things got real bad real fast in India. And basically his entire family got COVID-19. Um, his mother, his father, his grandmother, um, his brother, his sister-in-law, two cousins, and even his three-month-old niece um, who was hospitalized. Oh. The baby was hospitalized. Oh my gosh. I know. Um, I mean, I think most of those family members were also hospitalized. Um, so they all got very sick. Um, and his mom in particular ended up um, in the hospital for for 18 days. And when I spoke with him on Tuesday, you know, she'd been there for a few weeks and he was very worried about her, very worried in particular because she was on oxygen and he had, he knew that oxygen supplies were running low and he was very concerned about, about that, that she would run out of oxygen. And also just, he said the hospital was overrun. He said the doctors there in, in ICU have like 36 patients under their care. Like it's just too mm -hmm. many. And he knew she wasn't getting the treatment that he wanted for her, that it was just, it was too overwhelming. Um, and then I learned, you know, on Thursday that, um, she had, uh, his mom had died, um, Thursday morning. Aww. Um, and it's just, when I talked to him before then, and then after it's just, it's hard to kind of understand how hard it is to, 
be so far away from Mm -hmm. all your family when this is happening. Um, Mm -hmm. And he he really wanted even, you know, before her passing, he really wanted to go back there and he wanted to feel like he could help them, that he could, you know, he's got this expertise. He's a scientist, like he knows his stuff and he thought he could, you know, do more to protect them, but he's just too far away. And then now, of course, with his with his mom having died, he can't be there to grieve with them. And I haven't talked to him about that, but I'm I can't imagine how hard that is. But um, he also has, you know, a wife and a, and a small child here in San Francisco with him. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's got that, you know, that responsibility that kind of keeps him here. Um, so even if he if he could go, he, he can't. <laughs> yeah. And your story says that his mother was only 54. So that's pretty young yeah i mean that's that's one of the things we're seeing is they're really seeing this affecting people across all age groups um and you know of course you know we don't know what was going on with his mom and exactly you know why why she got so seriously ill um but you know there's there's concern that it could be the variant that it could have been that she just didn't get really good care because of the hospital situation um you know, any number of factors, but yeah, it's just, it's just really awful. And yeah, I mean, I interviewed probably half a dozen people with connections to India for this story and every single one of them, you know, had many family members who were ill. Most mm-hmm. of them had family members who had died, um, family members who couldn't get into hospitals, who couldn't get treatment. And it was just, the situation is is just incredibly dire. I don't think it's possible to really get that across um, just how bad things are. Yeah. And as you kind of alluded to, this isn't some abstract crisis half a world away for many Bay Area residents. Um, They have very close ties to India. In your story, it says 300,000 people living here um, are from India or have family there. So it's it's really impacting Bay Area people, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, most folks I talk to have still have a lot of family in India. And this the surge that they're experiencing, it's not really just isolated to like one part of the country. It's like swept across mm-hmm. the entire country. So it's like there's no part that that feels safe right now. And it's such a different picture from here, of course, where most adults are vaccinated. And now, you know, mass vaccination sites are even having trouble kind of giving away the doses. But are we ever really going to be safe when there's flare ups in other parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, that is that's that's the that's a really important question. And and the answer is yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, we have done such a great job now with our vaccination. Um, We've really kind of gotten to such a level that that we it's very unlikely we would ever see anything like what's happening in India right now or even really mm-hmm. anything like what we experienced with the winter surge um in the bay area and in California so on the one hand we're we're in really good shape in that on the other you know as long as as we still have this virus kind of raging out of control in any part of the world we're all we're not going to see the end of this pandemic um, we're going to be kind of constantly living in this state of, you know, always sort of waiting for the virus to kind of re-enter the country. Even if we get it tamped down to really low levels, you know, there's always going to be these reservoirs. It's always going to be this virus kind of out there, um, you know, ready to kind of come into the country. And, you know, we worry about, you know, when you when you see these kinds of numbers, you worry about these variants, um, which is this is how the virus mutates is when it spreads, it mutates and creates, you know, which can lead to kind of different behaviors in, in the virus. It can make it more infectious. It can make it, you know, more severe. It can help it evade the vaccines. So as, you know, these numbers kind of spike in India, we know that these these variants are being created and, and there's just no way to keep 
those, you know, to contain those to one country. There's nothing we can do with our borders to prevent those cases from coming in once once they exist. So, you know, and and so if they if they see a variant that that can, you know, escape our vaccines or that that is more infectious or that that causes more serious disease, you know, we're always going to have people who aren't vaccinated in the United States who aren't able to be vaccinated, um, who choose not to, who don't have access to whatever. Um, and that's that's going to mean we're always at risk. And at some point, our vaccines will wear off, right? Like we're going to mm-hmm. need booster shots. We don't know when that is exactly. So, yeah, I mean, as long as there's these kind of surges and these situations happening anywhere in the world, then that's just something we're always going to have to face. We're always going to have to think about and, and deal with kind of in, in our own um, communities. Great. Well, we will be right back after a quick break to hear about a more uplifting story from you, Erin. You can support Fifth in Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Uh, welcome back, Erin Day, And you have another story out that I know will be interesting to a lot of parents in particular, which is um, a vaccine is on the way for 12 to 15-year-olds. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, this is really um, a really uplifting, exciting news. <laughs> Yay. Yes, I know. Um, yeah, so so Pfizer um, a couple of weeks ago submitted its uh, application with the FDA to get um, approval to vaccinate 12 to 15 year olds. So that kind of preteen and young teen um, age group. Um, you know, of course, it's not guaranteed that that the FDA will approve it in that group. But but the numbers that we saw from Pfizer from their their trials in that age group looked really promising. The vaccine seemed to be super effective, no, you know, bad outcomes or side effects. So, you know, most people seem to think that it's it will it will get approval and it probably will be sometime in May. So presumably sometime fairly soon, um, which is which is fantastic, especially with our vaccine supply actually looking pretty good. At this point, we actually have more, you know, supply than demand in a lot of places. So, you know, presumably we could get you know, this age group, these middle school students and high school students vaccinated, um, a lot of them vaccinated before the school year starts, which I know, you know, it won't be required for for schools, but um, and it won't be necessary, but it'll be a huge, I think, reassurance for a lot of kids and parents and educators to get, you know, a big block of those kids vaccinated. Um, and so Pfizer has already asked for approval. And then you said Moderna probably will yeah. soon as well. So Moderna has been is about a month behind Pfizer on its trials. So they should be people expect them to apply for authorization soon, maybe any time now, um, and then probably get get approval like about a month or so after after Pfizer. So yeah, we should have two options for kids um, in that age group this summer. And how do they decide on the age groups when they're testing? Like it's very specific 12 to 15. Any idea, you know, why why those ages are chosen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, um, you know, the, the 12 and up tends to be more kind of in that adult category. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of a puberty thing, right? Like there's just our body oh, chemistry true. and kids in that age group tend to be more in the adult side of things, um, 
you know, versus versus uh, kids who are younger than that. But, you know, I know that that's that's one factor. I'm sure that there are many other factors that kind of have a long history or maybe particular to to this uh, to to COVID. But um, but they think that it's it's primarily that's the reason I, there could be other reasons that I'm not aware of. I asked because my kids are not yet 12. <laughs> so selfishly, I want to know when vac- vaccines will be ready for little kids. Yeah. It's, Do you have any idea? It's going to be a while for those little kids, unfortunately. Um, I, you know, a lot of folks I talk to seem to think that it probably won't be towards the end of this this calendar year and maybe even uh, early um, 2022. Um, you know, they're just... They're just taking their time. I mean, you know, those kids do pretty well with COVID. So it's like we're less worried about, um, you know, serious illness with them. We're less worried about, you know, how how they transmit it. Um, they seem to be pretty, pretty safe from the disease itself. So that means, you know, you take that kind of you kind of take your time with with the trials. And, and you know, they're going to have to with that age group, too, they have to really think about dosing a lot more because um, that's another thing with that kind of younger teens, teenage group is, you know, just body size, right? Like they're a little bit bigger. And so you can kind of dose them a little bit more on the adult scale, whereas little kids, you've got to be thinking about how much of this you're going to give them, how much do they need? You know, there's just a lot of those Mm -hmm. factors that go into it. And um, you're not anticipating that California would require vaccines for school, but they'll just be an option. Yeah. I mean, you know, full disclosure, I don't, I haven't had confirmation one way or the other from the state on that. I did ask them and they haven't gotten back to me yet. Um, but everybody I talked to in counties and schools um, said they just did not imagine that happening. Um, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of, of diseases, there's a lot of vaccines that require for schools. Um, so California is actually pretty... Um, pretty strict on that compared to other states. Um, but there is a process, a pretty lengthy process for getting um, a vaccine onto that schedule. Um, and especially with these, these all these vaccines, even for adults now, are they just have that emergency authorization. So they're not mm-hmm. officially approved by the FDA yet. That's expected soon for the adults, but it won't be anytime real soon for the, for the younger kids. And it's hard to imagine the state mandating that. I don't think the state could mandate it for an emergency authorization. But mm-hmm. again, you know, I don't have that officially, you know, stated yet. So I, it just seems to me like nobody I talk to can really imagine a scenario where it's required for the fall. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting that you pointed out that children may be easier to vaccinate than adults because um, kids get vaccinated all the time and are all seeing their pediatrician every year and there's just more connections. Yeah, I was I I it's one of those things where I hadn't thought about it and then as soon as somebody mentioned it to me I was like, "Oh, that that makes a lot of sense, right?" Like you know, people are just used to getting kids into their doctors and they get their shots. And this is just sort of a normal thing for for kids, even in that age group um, and for parents to have that relationship. It's actually more complicated to get adults because, you know, I mean, so some adults are pretty good about flu shots, but but most of us, you know, we don't go in to get vaccinated very often. We don't. And, and doctors don't, of, of, of adult patients don't necessarily know how to talk to them even about vaccines, whereas pediatricians are very comfortable having those conversations with parents. Well, thank you as always for enlightening us and for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Heather. Thank you to Erin Alday for joining me today, to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and to you for listening.